Hi, my name is Ann Runciman, and I'm a student at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, and we have a campus ghost. So Kingston, in and of itself, is kind of a more ghost-filled town than you generally find in Canada, simply because it's a lot older, and it's got all these old institutions, it's got all the old prisons and the early psychiatric hospitals, and one of our first prime ministers is from here. So we got a lot of that sort of stuff going on, and Queen's isn't an exception. It's 175 years old. It's got, supposedly, it's got several ghosts, but the only one I've ever really heard about is Alfie's ghost. The story of Alfie is kind of something you've got to take with a bit of a grain of salt, because nobody really knows the exact story of Alfie. But in general, what you tend to hear is that Alfie Pierce was born in 1874, and he was the son of slaves who had escaped from the South and run up here to Canada before the Civil War. And when he was hanging around the football field, and the coach there basically spotted him and was like, hey, you want to be like the team water boy slash mascot? And so he ended up being the mascot, but not like he dressed up as the mascot. Alfie himself was the mascot. He kind of, you know, wore the school colors and bumbled around and was, was a bit racist. But anyway, he become, became this kind of symbol of queen spirit. They even had a bar here named after him for a while. And the story goes that in the summer he used to sleep under the bleachers, but then in the winter he had to sleep in the boiler room with Boohoo, the bear mascot who was an actual bear at the time. And then he had a stroke in the late 1940s. He died like two years later. And when they looked at his body after he died, turned out that the frostbite that he'd gotten in there had made his feet gangrenous, which is kind of brutal. And he was buried not too far from here, but some people say that his queen spirit was so great that he could never truly leave campus, and he's still here, while others say he wanders campus in search of revenge. It doesn't. Have you heard the story of... And written on the wall... And everyone blood. has the different stories of, oh, this happened to my brother, this happened to my telling you stories of the old... There was this girl. It was back when we were little kids. To find out the truth regarding one of the most enduring tales in American history. A war. story behind the story. Because it's just a story. Hello and welcome to the Just A Story Podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Sam. And we're here to tell you a story. Each week we take a look at the stories that we tell over and over again. What our fears and fables, myths and misdeeds say about us as humans. And this week we have something new for you. Lots of stories. Lots of stories. All the stories. But before we get into that, we do want to thank all of you for coming back. All of you for contacting us on twitter reaching out to us on facebook through instagram all those fun social media things to keep us plugged in while we're ignoring our college classes and lectures and you can reach out to us so that you can wake up from your boring professor at just a story pod at all of those avenues that's right. If you are working hard to ignore your education for which you are probably going to be in debt for a very long time, as you should, don't pay attention to those people. They know nothing. Just kidding. No, I'm not. You can talk to us instead, or you can go and look at our website while you're supposed to be working on Math Lab. Or base an essay on our episode. That's fine. All the sources are there for you. <laughs> Just send us a copy when we're done so we can give you an A-plus smiley face and maybe a sticker. Or Sam will edit it with a red pen. Either one. Or both. A for effort. C minus for grammar. So also on that website, you can find links to our merch store where we have t-shirts and all sorts of fun things emblazoned with our logo designed by Sam. Also, guys, I am proud to announce that I am about to add mugs. For your wake up America coffee. (laughs) 
Also on our website, you'll find links to our Patreon page. And that's where you can go to become a sustaining members like you. And on there, you can help support the show and get fun rewards in that way, like mini episodes, stickers, digital meetups, or chances to come on the show. And we do have a few new patrons to thank, including Alan Kapkowski and Mary Beerbaum. Thank you all for helping to support the show. Thanks, guys. You're the best. All of you are the best. My, you're looking lovely today. And thanks for all of you for calling the Just a Story hotline. Okay, so let's have a little party for everybody that helped out with this week's episode. Wee party! They were smart enough to call the Just a Story Urban Legend Hotline at 512-222-3375. Wee party again! And this week, we'll be featuring college ghost stories submitted by you! Viewers like you. Exactly. And so these are all, all, all listeners submitted. But before we get to their stories, let's talk about our college ghost story, the big one. The one that is told around LSU. We went to the Old War School back in the day. And when we did, there was a legend that one of the halls on campus was haunted. Right. So Pleasant Hall, which at the time we were there was used as like offices and there was like a math lab there and continuing education stuff. But it used to be a girl's dormitory and has been used for several other purposes over time, such as as a hotel. And we all know how, what kind of lovely, lovely things happen in hotels. But supposedly... A young woman was living in Pleasant Hall in like the 50s or the 60s. You know, it's a ghost story, so. It could, it could be any time. I've also heard that she was one of the student overseers of the hotel who lived there, too. And this is supposedly back when it was called Smith Hall, when it was the girl's dorm. And she and her boyfriend got into a big argument. And it was so bad that she shot him before running upstairs to her room. Room three, one, two, where she proceeded to shoot herself. Now, in some versions of the story, she jumps out the third floor window, and sometimes the boyfriend survives, sometimes he doesn't. You know, it's a college ghost story. It just kind of changes and moves and changes with the times. Interestingly, I don't think she has a name. She doesn't. Not all ghosts do, but some do. Most do. A lot do, especially on colleges. And especially the ones that live in residence halls. Very true. But you know what? She's not a, it's not a residence hall anymore. Mm-hmm. That may be part of it. Because you don't have to kind of name her. You know, like, oh, I you heard. Don't, you don't last hang out night. with her every day? Yeah. But this is our favorite ghost story because. I accidentally ran into her before I ever heard the urban legend. I had gone into Math Lab one night when Jacob was at our favorite coffee shop in Baton Rouge, Highland Coffee. If you're Shut ever up. in Baton Rouge, you should go to Highland Coffee. It's awesome. But he was over there studying, and I went to Math Lab. And as I was leaving, I like thought I saw saw somebody like crying and I like went to go check on her. Of course you did. I did. Cause she was like wandering around and it looked like she was very upset. Like, I just went to go check on her and I lost her. And like there's a weird loop. Like if you go past the reception desk, it, there's like a it's like a wheelchair ramp that they put in to make it accessible, but it it makes this weird alcove where you can't see from one side to the other. It's a hallway to nowhere. Nowhere. But there's like an elevator back there. So it has to look like that. Anyway, so I like enter the loop and I come out of the loop and she's gone and I can't see her. And as I'm like leaving the hall, I look up and 
in the third floor, I see like somebody standing at the window looking at me creepily. And this is in the dead of night. Yes. So there aren't people really like in their offices or anything. No. And she's just standing there looking at me. And I came out and I was like, uh, Jacob, I'm either going crazy, which is always possible. Or I just saw, I think I saw a ghost. And he was like, no. Really? Yeah. Really? Samantha. <laughs> and then we like look it up. And actually, I think I looked it up to see if there was anything even on the third floor. Like what was up there? And as soon as I typed in Pleasant Hall LSU, like the first result was ghost. And I was like, you're shitting me. <laughs> so that's how I found out about that urban legend. And just like every college, university, there are those urban legends that go with it. And there are those ghost stories that are tied to it. Some of them are kind of retreads, but some are unique to the place as well. And it's just interesting to see that. But it's not a surprise that these usually old places with lots of people moving through them have these stories. So oftentimes when kids are coming to campus for the first time as undergrads, they feel that they need to adjust to the new environment by connecting themselves to those who've come before them. There's a continuity provided by the real story. You see my air quotes? Told to you by the RA. Of folklore that allows them to understand the personality of a place, the character of a college, and learn the lessons that everyone else has learned before. And of course, that folklore includes so many things other than just ghost stories. You know, you learn those traditions, you learn the alma mater, you learn the other kind of weird stories and historical events that could have occurred there even learn songs and dances like we did yes we have a very dancey student section whenever we'd go to football games everyone knew all the words to all the spirit songs and everyone did the dances if you ever watch us on espn you'll see that kind of business the student section is very tuned in so i read this excellent book called campus traditions from old-time colleges to the modern mega university by simon Bronner. he talks a little bit about these institutionalized ghosts, like the one we heard about in our first story. That story was sent to us by Ron from Queens College. You know, we have the story of this kind of like mascot symbol of the university person who goes on to continue to live there after he's no longer living. He is so tied to the school and tied to those traditions that he can never, ever escape. I don't think he wants to. Oh, Escape is yeah. the wrong word, I think. Like, he, he's happy to be there. I think you're right. But there are other examples, like one I read about in Illinois Wesleyan at Adams Hall at the Acacia Fraternity was this woman named Frances, who is a ghost of a lady who would get really mad if the boys started letting the house get dirty. And so the phone would start ringing with hang-up calls. If they cleaned up, they would stop getting the calls. And I'm like, that is the most useful ghost I've ever heard of in the history of the world. That's a great way to get frack-ass to pick up this shit. So I like these kind of, like I said, like institutional ghosts. And these are the kinds of things that, you know, help tell you about the character of either your particular building or your campus in general or, you know, the system. Well, it's also a way to connect. You know, we're connecting with our new environment, this new, very strange place these old buildings sometimes centuries old right and in that book by Bronner, he does talk about that idea he talks about the importance of this kind of storytelling he says the fears and joys of campus life come out in narratives that can edge toward laughter or tears whether ghostly legends or bawdy jokes they raise emotions entertain and teach 
and offer a release from the grind of life and the sobering college landscape. They allow an expression of feelings, values, and hopes. In a special imaginative frame that folklore provides, fears and joys are translated to symbols and telling events and given plenty of room to operate. Right, and usually we hear these kind of stories from the get-go, right away, freshman orientation, moving into the dorm, hearing it from RAs. I really think that's an RA's entire job, is to tell you spooky stories. Because like when I went to camp when I was younger, we stayed in a dorm, because it was like it was a creative scholars camp, and... I had an RA named Angela, and Angela stopped me and told me about the ghost as I was unpacking my things. (laughs) So I think that's what they're for. I'm not sure they have another job. So these stories that are very important. And very true. They really happened. Or they kind of happened. Or they maybe happened. No, they're true. Well, sometimes. (laughs) They're told as true. That's important. The conviction is important. That's always the most important part. (laughs) But as often as not, they're half-truths. With the elaborations that come with being half-true. And Bronner says this does not detract from their value. Indeed, it adds to it. For the truth of narratives often lies in the belief and sentiment expressed. The cultural perception, if you will, in this unofficial version given from one student to another in folklore. The classic urban legend track. Friend of a friend. Gotta hear it from them. They all heard it from their RA, too. Don't let them lie to you. But a lot of times, you know, with these old buildings that you're surrounded by, and stately oaks and broad magnolias. That shade inspiring halls. That's true. A lot of these ghost stories happen in residential halls. Well, that's true. And there's a reason for that. It's because you're asked to adopt this place as your living quarters, but it feels like a very public space, right? All right this is your home, but it's not. And And hundreds and thousands of people have lived there. And so these legends serve to personalize the place and kind of like allow you to elaborate and fill in this weird space created for you that is nothing like anything you've ever done before, unless you went to boarding school, in which case you probably also had ghosts there. But they're strange, right? Like in Hogwarts? Yes. If you went to Hogwarts, you had a house ghost. It's what you do. And so new students are often introduced to a resident ghost. And they do kind of, like in Hogwarts, function to sum up the character and kind of give you a shorthand for understanding the values of the place. Just like all of these urban legends, or so many of them, they also serve as warnings. Yes, that's true. And the majority of the ghosts, even in men's residences, are women, which is very interesting. Like the one that tells you to pick your shit up. My favorite ghost. I love that ghost. I was going to say we need to get that ghost for Remy. but we so already, I was going to say, can we get that ghost for the house? <laughs> but we already tried the Crimsley Clown with him, and it doesn't seem to do much good. So they're, like I said, they're usually women, and a lot of them, a lot, a lot of them have committed suicide. And the number of suicides in Legends vastly outnumber the number of suicides in real life on campus, which I think is super interesting. They're rarely malicious, sometimes mischievous, And they're used to explain lost property, disturbed sleep, and weird noises. Creaking footsteps. Or old shifty buildings with lots of pipes that were put in 100 years after they were built. But as we've said, these stories are told to us right away. These are the beginnings of our kind of indoctrination into college life. So here's a story sent to us by one of our listeners, Mary, 
from University of Arizona about a ghost called Crayola. The story goes is when I was about 18 years old, I was enrolled in a summer program called uh, New Start with the University of Arizona. And this was a program for incoming freshmen to get used to college before it started. So we had some upperclassmen who were RAs and were kind of helping us with transitioning into college. So I don't know if they made up the story just to mess with the, the incoming freshmen and scare us, but in this dormitory called Yavapai, it's near where a lot of U of A students know as the old main building. There was a resident director who had lived in this dorm, and he had his family with him, and he had a little girl. We don't know what her name is, but... The nickname is Crayola because she used to always have a handful of crayons with her every time she was there. She was a really cute kid, very enjoyable, but one day she was playing in the basement, um, which is now the basement. It's a common room now, and there was an old furnace there that they've long since removed, and she somehow got inside the, the furnace. That's not clear how. She got inside and got herself stuck and locked inside, and the furnace was turned on for that night, and unfortunately, the little girl had died in the furnace. So a lot of students have said and maintained to this day that sometimes they can smell burning wax uh, lingering through the hallways of the Yavapai dormitory. So this story is so interesting because it is not a college student that is the ghost. It's not a, like in Pleasant Hall, a girl that lived there and killed herself or killed somebody. It's not a past caretaker. It's a little girl. And strangely enough, children do show up in several college urban legends and ghost stories. And I think that that's because, and this is just my reading of it, there's sort of a mourning of that loss of youth. This is like a place where childhood literally goes to die. This is where you have to become an adult. Hopefully. It's an extended adolescence, but maybe you're not using so many crayons anymore. I like crayons. <laughs> Me too. And there is just this feeling that you've kind of been thrown in the d- deep end with, when you move away and you're on your own and you're doing your own laundry and having to study and trying to make friends. It's overwhelming. It's a lot. And so I think that there's sort of a longing for simpler times. And we always like to talk about hashtag liminal states. And the reason that is constantly brought up is because these are the times in our lives, the times where we're in between, where things are scary and things are different and things are changing and there's a lot of anxiety associated with it. And this is a huge liminal state that is still very present in our modern day Western society of moving away from home, going to college. And that huge transition. Right. And the liminal state is actually the entire time you're in college, when you're between being a child in your parents' care and being an adult on your own. So it's not so unusual to see a child ghost. However, what's much more common, much, much more common, is to see a jilted lover ghost or a wronged lover ghost or a mad lover ghost. (laughs) Hell hath no fury. And so let's go to a story by Clarissa, who will tell about one of the ghosts from her college. There's two versions of the biggest story at high school. The first one, I think, is the oldest version, because I've always heard it from my mom, who went here about 20 years ago. And I've heard it from the upperclassmen. Well, I've only heard the second version of the story on the internet and from freshmen. The ghost's name is Ellen, 
and she's in the oldest dorm on campus, which is the one I live in right now. It was built in 1925, I think, and Ellen is supposed to be from the 1930s. And her story is that she had an abusive boyfriend, and they would argue all the time, and finally, one day before Christmas break, he locks her in the attic of France Hall, and everyone is left for break, and no one can hear her screaming for help in the attic, and when they get back, and they find her frozen to death in the attic, and so she haunts France Hall, and she's usually benign, she just likes to mess with lights and electronics and turn those radios on and off, but if you've had an argument with your boyfriend, then she'll go berserk and slam doors and hide things. So courtship is a common theme, as I said, because it's a common distraction for people who are meant to be learning from some books. Getting all caught up in those boys and girls and all your experimenting. This is a theme that you can see played out in legends and, oh, I don't know, ballads going back years and years and years and years. Like, you know, for example, like, I don't know, murder ballads. So young people's views on relationships really change in this time period, in this liminal state that we all go through. A study from East Carolina University entitled Love Relationships Among College Students had a questionnaire that was given to 184 grad students and 94% reported having been in love before and 36 reported three or more love relationships. So love and romance is very popular and seen as something is very important in college life. No good can come of it. Run away, run away. You're going to become a angry lover ghost. And now you do see some of that jaded aging <laughs> through this because the younger respondents, like 18, 19 year olds, were more likely than our older respondents over 20 to believe in things like love at first sight. And people in that perfect relationship were more likely to agree that love conquers all than those that were not in a current relationship. So some couples experience love feelings upon first meetings and find love helpful in motivating them to resolve conflict. Most couples <laughs> discover that love develops over time and that managing conflict in relationship takes work. And of course, this comes with age and experience. Right. And we see this story, like the one that was shared with us by Clarissa, kind of trying to shake away some of the delusions or the optimism, let's call it optimism, of younger students because it's saying like, no, 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 he was terrible. This, this guy was awful. He was abusive. He hurt her. And it's saying like, you can't trust everyone and you can't depend on every relationship to work out perfectly. And you've got to be objective and discerning. And it really is a strong warning. And I think that's because at this time, you know, people who are starting college are encountering so many strangers and they don't have that kind of community vetting where you can say like, oh, well, his mama says that he's a nice boy. I go to church with her. I play bridge with her. No, these people are strangers. So we need these warnings for younger men and women who don't know as much about how hard it is to make relationships work. And we see that again in a story that was sent to us from Kelly at Rutgers. Let's hear a little bit about that now. 
Okay, so interestingly, the Halls Mills murder is a very real murder. And I think, ladies and gentlemen of the podcast, that we're going to be covering it on an upcoming mini cast. Yeah, so sign up on Patreon now if you want to hear that. But let's look at some of the larger themes kind of carried in that story that Kelly sent us. First of all, there's a major fear among college students about partners moving on and that you'll be separated by geography and life phase. If your partner exits the liminal state before you do and you're left behind, you could lose that entire relationship. You know, if your partner graduates and goes to med school, what are you going to do? Not that I've ever been there. Run away. But we also see this major theme of jealousy play out. And that's not just in the story. It's there for sure. It's not just in what actually happened. But it's also continually reaffirmed as she makes the flowers of these young women wilt. Don't believe it. These flowers are just temporary, like your love. So that jealousy and becoming more jaded and becoming more cynical, while it's necessary to be discerning about relationships, it can go too far. And I think that this story is a kind of a warning against that, saying you have to find a balance. You have to be optimistic about your relationships if they're strong, but you need to be discerning enough to know whether they are or not. And it is an important theme in these stories, kind of learning to balance these relationships with everything else. And this has become a really hot topic recently among people looking at college students and the younger generations because people are not having serious relationships at young ages like they were before. The relationship type has changed. Now, a lot of people like to put it through in headlines that hooking up culture. But like we talked about before, there are large studies showing that that does not necessarily mean that you're having just tons of random sex. Wait, what? Oh, did I wake you up with that word? What? Who's having random sex? Not really anyone. Okay. People are. People are, of course. People always have been. People always will. But not like mass amounts of the population. It's like not like 90% of people are sleeping with someone new every night. Exactly. It's just it's what it makes it sound like um, when you use that term. But this is an idea that has just been growing and growing since the 60s and 70s with women's liberation and increases in women going to college and pursuing careers that that importance of having these really serious relationships early on has definitely diminished and this is coming from people that had a serious relationship early on yeah we met when we were babies we just couldn't get rid of each other you know the turn of the 20th century young couples would go to a movie or a dinner and then lead to a relationship and then you get married and that was that end goal yeah and that's no longer the end goal for everyone. Of course, some people, it is. You know, this is not a blanket statement. The trajectory of the path has changed. It may be the goal, but people expect to, you know, do more of a tour on their way to that goal, you know, on the journey to that destination than they did 100 years ago, which that is a little misleading because with the advent of the automobile, courtship and courting and dating changed so much. It's 
that the expectation of society has finally allowed itself to progress to a point where it actually mirrors what happens between young people as they pursue a relationship more than anything. It sounds taboo. But, you know, the age of marriage is creeping up. Age of having kids, settling down is creeping up. And students say things like, the thought of being in love with someone is the most terrifying thing. Or that the avoidance of monogamy and commitment is tied to the fact that they're trying to balance their social, independent, and academic lives while they're in this transitional, liminal period. And so these more casual relationships have replaced the more serious relationships. And of course, with the increase in casual relationships, there's always that concern, especially among the older generation, of sex. (gasps) Gasp! And now, we have a story about the dangers of sex. You have to whisper it. Sex. Sex. In the college setting. And this comes to us from Aaron, who's going to tell us a a pair of ghost stories. The university that I attended was nestled into the mountains, and it was built upon a piece of property that was previously known as the Poor Farm, and it housed the destitute, the hopeless, little more than a workhouse for mountain orphans in the times of the Depression and earlier. And when they repurposed the property for the Poor Farm, of course they had to do delightful things like moving the cemetery so they could build. But one building that had been used during its time as the poor farm was a lovely, sturdily constructed brick building with double verandas all around during the time of the poor farm. The building was used as a doctor's office and a set of administrative offices and a mortuary. When it began to be used as part of the university, it was a dormitory and administrative offices, back and forth, back and forth, depending on what they needed at the time. There is the tale that if you were sitting on the lower veranda certain times of day and night, you would hear footsteps on the veranda above, and there was nothing to be seen there. Or you would hear the footsteps and you'd see a girl, a thin, waifish bit of a girl, lean from the austerity of the mountains in the 1920s or 30s, just walking about aimlessly, hopeless. And the tale was she was a girl, engaged, but then abandoned, only to find that she had fallen pregnant. And when the doctor at the poor farm confirmed this for her, She wandered back and forth aimlessly on the balcony, wondering what she might do. And in the end, she walked to the veranda's railing and jumped off. But she was caught just so by the tree that was up against the building that she was killed, but didn't fall to the ground. And so her skirts, blowing in the breeze, gently tapped, tapped, tapped the window on the first floor of the building. But being the mountains, in late evening, it was already dark and she wasn't discovered until morning. Similarly, there is another girl that walks the floors, but instead of a veranda, she's on the first floor or the basement, where the mortuary used to be. 
And as she walks about, you can hear the creaking of the metal mortuary tables that aren't there anymore. The hissing of steam radiators that haven't worked in years, decades. Sometimes you see her walking aimlessly, looking desperately for the tiny bit of exposed plumbing that the building had in those days that was strong enough to hang herself from when she received similarly discouraging news from the doctor there. And they're harmless, sad girls. They walk back and forth and you can watch them if you see them. But the moment you speak to them, they disappear. So we see here that there is a theme that arises, unintended pregnancy. And it is, just as it is in Mean Girls, conflated with death. You have sex, you get pregnant, then you die. That's basically what these ghost stories tell us. It's true. So this com- this theme of like unintended pregnancy causing mass catastrophe and leaving ghost is not isolated to just the women's sphere. There's actually a story from a frat house at Indiana University where babies are heard crying. Oh my God, that's creepy. At a frat house full of men. Okay, I, I get it. I mean, I do definitely think that for a woman it is much scarier to get unintentionally pregnant, but guys are scared of that too. <laughs> I, I get I understand. Yeah, I really do. And there's a story that goes along with the crying babies at the frat house basement. Did I mention it's the basement where they cry? It's the basement, because of course it is. Of course it is. But apparently the house was originally owned by a doctor, and that part's true. Always a kernel of truth. Right? Who performed illegal abortions in his home. Don't know if that's true. And of course he had to do this under the cover of darkness, in the dead of the night. And a lot of times the women he was performing abortions on were people affiliated with the college and sometimes sorority girls. And he, quote, threw fetuses in the coal bin. That'll make a ghost. (laughs) That'll make a ghost. So the baby cries are the aborted fetuses, which is just lovely. And so we kind of have to ask now in this day and age, is the horror that he performed the abortions, is that supposed to be the bad part? Or is it that he had to do it illegally in his basement with poor lighting and bad tools and unsanitary conditions? Possibly, but you know, I think it probably has more to do with those those fears of sex, what sex can lead to. Of course it can lead to problems from a relationship standpoint, like previous stories can lead to jealousy, but can also lead to unintentional pregnancy. And while we have seen a drop in the teen pregnancy rate since 1991, which was kind of the peak, we've not seen that in the 20-something group. It's remained fairly stable. So, In one study, 12% of college students reported either experiencing or being involved in unplanned pregnancy. And another study pointed to 23%. That's a pretty large number. Among unmarried young women from 20 to 29, nearly 70% of all pregnancies are unplanned. And so John O'Keefe, a dean of student life at Wellesley College, said, Of the students I've worked with directly, my sense is that most have chosen to have an abortion fewer choose to continue the pregnancy to term. And the Guttmacher Institute estimated that about 40% of women who obtain abortions are college age. So you can see why this story is told and why these kinds of stories are common among college campuses and among young people on college campuses. 
But pregnancy can have very serious consequences, especially for female students. The dropout rate is pretty pronounced. Right. Nationally, unplanned births account for nearly one in 10 dropouts among female students at community colleges and account for 7% of dropouts among community college students overall. So it's a really significant impact. Those that start community college that have children, over half of them do not finish their school. And so that's something that it, it really would hit home with a young person at college. So there's one more story that I think has some interesting themes. It's sort of in a similar vein. Now, this one's also at a frat house. It's at San Jose State. So supposedly, there is a phone or the sound of a phone ringing that can never be answered. And it's attributed to a young woman who died after being gang raped as a result of injuries sustained during the assault. And this is at Mulder Hall. So is it like an actual phone ringing? Like the... Woman tell them to pick their shit up? No, there was a phone booth where she supposedly went to try and call for help, but she died before she could make her phone call. Later, that phone booth was removed, but at the spot where it was previously located, you can still hear the phone ringing and a woman crying. Oh, that's spooky. It's very creepy. But this kind of picks up on that idea of enforcing a moral code, of saying, like, this is wrong. This makes a ghost. Don't make a ghost. You can never do something nice and make a ghost. (laughs) A lot of ghosts, as we've said, in the college setting, kill themselves. And a lot of times this happens after they are rejected by their peers. They may have had their concerns dismissed by family. And you can never know that. They might have a strained relationship with their family. They may have other things going on. But it sort of highlights the importance of being kind and understanding and helpful to your fellow students because you don't have access to the full picture of their life. So the thing about college life is it's very segmented and we don't know everyone's history and we don't know how many other spheres this person is living in at any given time. So these themes of like not knowing what's going on with someone like or like the full extent of their anxiety or pain is highlighted really well in a story from Huntington College in Alabama where there's a ghost called Martha and she's also called the Lady in Red or the Red Lady. She's always seen wearing red and she was a Yankee. Oh no. From New York and she could not adjust to Southern life. Bless her heart. Bless her heart indeed. And like she tried to tell her parents about it and they were like, tough it out. You're going to college in Alabama. And she was totally overwhelmed by the experience and cut her wrists. And that's why she's always seen wearing red. Blood red. Yes, yes. But I do think that's interesting because I don't think you'd see a ghost in the North that was from the South that just couldn't adjust to northern life. It just wouldn't happen the other way around. No, because us southerners just think that no Yankee could come down and adjust us with their devil horns. (laughs) So if the residence hall is sort of one sphere of life, I think that you can say that there's another equally well-populated and storied sphere That is residence hall adjacent. And that is the sphere of Greek life on campus. And here we're going to go back for another version of a college legend from Clarissa. Now the second version of Ellen's story is there's the sorority that has its hall on the third floor. Their nickname on campus is the five. And they have 
this reputation of being um, very exclusive and not very nice, which I live right next door to them, and I've literally never had a problem. But for the sake of the story, it makes sense. So she rushes the Fies, and she doesn't get in, and she is so distraught about this that she goes to the attic and she hangs herself. And she either carves into the door or she writes it in blood. And I'm not sure how she's supposed to have written this in blood if she hanged herself, but details. Fie or die on the door in big letters. So we've talked about several stories and frat houses and sorority houses, and that is common. A lot of people in college life do participate in Greek life. You know, it's estimated that roughly... A million current students belong to fraternities and sororities. And in 2012, the North American Intrafraternity Conference said that about 14% of incoming college freshmen intended to join a sorority. In the South, it's much higher. That's true. Uh, Where we went to school, it was like 30%. We're Greek. We're Greek. We weren't. Shocking. (laughs) I wrote for the college newspaper and took art classes. You were a Boy Scout leader. So a lot of times, the idea... The thing I heard from my friends who were Greek was like, it's just such a good way to make friends. And then the thing I heard from my friends who were not Greek is like, oh my God, I can't believe you bought your friends. And that is so true. And there are a lot of positives and a lot of negatives to Greek life. Without a doubt, some people join to have a home, to have a a place. Sometimes this idea is called self-symbolization. And so it's this idolized condition that occurs when a person's status is legitimized by others who accept these symbols as valid status markers. So people who feel status anxiety are the people that will engage in self-symbolization. So they're going to adopt these symbols and use it to bolster their identity. So this nervous, anxious college student freshmen, college freshmen, that may be very concerned about what their place is in this world and in this new university that they're at, can find that stability in Greek life by pledging to a frat or a sorority. There's actually a really interesting book I read a little while back, and it's called Cool. And it's about our understanding of what makes people cool and how we mark ourselves that way and how we market cool. And there was a study done and it was called like the alligator study or something to that effect. And people, were there alligators? There was a Lacoste logo. Uh, I thought it might happen in Florida or something. No, 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 no. It was a real study. And they would have someone talking on camera and they would have people rate their likability, attractiveness, etc. And in one clip, the person would have on a green polo shirt with no logo. And then in the next video, for a different audience, he would have on a green polo shirt with a Lacoste logo. And the average ranking of his attractiveness and likability, etc., had gone up in the clips where he was wearing a logo on his shirt. I'm going to wear a Lacoste shirt from now on. Right, but we associate a certain amount of value with this branding symbolism with this symbol we think it says a certain thing about a person and the only difference between wearing a logo shirt and joining a fraternity or sorority is that you're communicating to a certain group of people who understand the brand when you buy into a sorority or a fraternity and it's a more subtle symbolism so you can think of it as kind of like branding toward a very specific audience who understands what those symbols mean. 
And so while Greek life can provide that place for people to go while they're in this anxiety-ridden liminal state, it can also cause problems too. You know, in a book called Pledged... Which is really good. Robin states that for every girl who emerges from a sorority with improved self-esteem, there are numerous others whose confidence has been crushed. And she lists several additional problem areas, such as an atmosphere of conformity, intolerance, and constantly being judged, along with a heavy reliance on men for social validation and enormous time and financial commitments. So, of course, there are positives to go along with Greek life, along with you know, encouraging academic success, making social connections, the charity work that's associated with it. There are definitely those negatives, too, that go along with these strong traditions. And these are strong traditions. One could argue that fraternities and sororities need to keep a close tie to their history in order to keep a close tie to that branded symbolism. They use secrecy and ritual to bind themselves to the past. And they're a expected to uphold this tradition and be deserving of this lineage. And while these ties may seem superficial or artificial, if they are given weight, they tie you to past generations of brothers and sisters as much as they tie you to your current generation of brothers and sisters. Legends help remind people involved in Greek life that they are charged with upholding the special status of these groups. Something about the stories of haunted sorority houses and haunted fraternity houses help imply this their own kind of hazing, this own kind of need to be tough and this ordeal that you have to go through. Now, fraternity and sorority ghosts tend to cause a little more chaos than their residence hall counterparts. And a lot of times, they have kind of a vanishing hitchhiker feel to them. In what way? Well, like where the vanishing hitchhiker would leave an article of clothing or tinsel or a wet spot where she was sitting if she was raining or whatever to prove that she'd been there and that she'd been a ghost to reveal herself as a ghost these spirits almost always pull a shining moment you've always been the caretaker jack kind of like that where somebody will interact with a person they're not familiar with And then later on, they'll be going through old yearbooks or looking through the old composite photos on the wall and recognize that person. I knew that guy. From 45 years ago. And he hasn't changed a bit. Oh my God, it was a ghost. And he died. He died. In some tragic beer bong accident. Right. Yes. So these like validate the legend. They give it a particular historical lineage and they connect the generations of fraternity and sorority members in a way that you know transcends time you're truly connected to your past and while sometimes they take that form of the vanishing hitchhiker sometimes they also take the form of a headless horseman Ooh, spooky like an indiana university which has a headless horseman frat ghost supposedly michael frang was riding on top of a homecoming float for Sigma Phi Epsilon, and a cannon, I don't know why they had a real cannon, on the float misfired and knocked his head off. And now, of course, he haunts the frat house basement. All accounts of this that I found were like, supposedly, according to legend, blah, blah, blah. And so I looked into it, and it really happened. Hmm? So in Indianapolis, Michael Frang, who was 20, 
and he was a Indiana University sophomore, had been sharing in the excitement of the Saturday Homecoming Festival Parade in Bloomington when he set a torch to a cannon. They had a pirate-themed homecoming oh, float. Pirates. Yeah, pirates. Of course. Right. So 12 hours later, he was pronounced dead at Indianapolis Robert Long Hospital. The cannon exploded at the base, hurling Frank onto the street as a crowd watched horrified. The Petersburg, Indiana University student was only moments before had been riding the Sigma Phi Epsilon float designed as a pirate ship. He was the son of Mr. and Mrs. James Smith of Peter- Petersburg. The spokesman at the hospital said that Frank's death resulted from severe head injuries. And this is why frats should not make their own cannons. Lesson learned. Lesson learned. There's a warning in that story for all of you. So one of my other favorite headless horseman frat ghosts, because there's more than one. Uh, of course. Is at the University of the South at Sewanee. And there's a group known as the Order of the Gownsmen, which sounds a little kkk to me. Or like skull and bones. Yeah, kind of. But apparently there was a guy who was a member who literally lost his head in a fight. And I'm not sure how one does that, but that's the story. That's a hell of a left hook. Yes. He had been studying at the library before he got into a bout of fisticuffs with some other student. And so each year, someone claims to have to fight the ghost or that the ghost comes and tries to fight them. And this how, year, does one, how does one fight, fight a, a ghost? ghost? No, I want video so bad. This usually happens during exam time. I don't have enough to deal with for this organic chemistry final. Ah, Fisticuff ghost. Like, where do you hit him? You can't knock him out. The fraternity ghosts, you know, have a variety of backgrounds. There's usually like unsolved murders. There's a lot of devil worship. Supposedly people come into the basements and worship devils and things. Of course. And then there's also this really common theme. A lot of the stories will be like the my brother was so scared he wouldn't stay at the house alone. And then I think it's really interesting because like the entire idea of fraternity and brotherhood is that you shouldn't be alone. You don't want to be alone. You don't have to. It's like the fear is so great that I can't stand to be alone. But could you ever, even before the ghost? Right. And as you've seen through a lot of the stories we've discussed, these are all stories related to the anxieties of college life. You know, you have the anxieties of going to a new place, the anxieties of leaving your childhood behind, anxieties of new relationships, anxieties of sex. And anxiety is something that is extremely common in college students. It can be caused by schoolwork, money, relationships, anything. And one New York Times article about this said that the more they thought about what they had to do, the more paralyzed the students became. Anxiety has now surpassed depression as the most common mental health diagnosis among college students. More than half of students visiting campus clinics cite anxiety as their health concern. Nearly one in six college students have been diagnosed with or treated for anxiety in the last 12 months. Now, some of this is that more people are seeking help for the anxiety they're experiencing, Because this anxiety has always been there. It used to be expressed in ghost stories. And still is. But now that stigma of looking for help for mental disorders is starting to thankfully fade away. And people can now get the help they need. Now, before people used to go to counseling, there were other ways that they would help with their anxiety. They're on pot, Jacob. They're on pot. Look at their eyes. They're on pot. So, college students supposedly are the druggiest of the druggy drug people. 
And this comes through in a variety of urban legends. Now, here's one of those stories now to tell us about all the reasons we should be terrified of drugs and or alcohol and or both. I found it extremely annoying that one of the bathrooms on my dorm was permanently closed, especially since the cause was an urban legend. So according to the story years and years ago, some guy got massively drunk at a bar in downtown Helena and he passed out in the bathroom on the fourth floor. Apparently he hit his head on the sink as he fell and blood splattered on the sink and he slid senselessly to the floor and silently hemorrhaged to death. His death was considered a sad accident by the faculty, staff, and townspeople. But that was no reason to shut up a bathroom for decades so I completely discounted the story of the bleeding sink. That was just an urban legend that students circulated to explain the locked door. So I look at my roommate and I said, I am sick and tired of sharing a bathroom with you gross fuckers. I'm going to break into the fourth floor bathroom. My roommate's eyes widened. Don't you know that bathroom is haunted? He exclaimed. Uh, the bloodstains on the sink are as fresh today as they were when the accident happened in the 1960s. And sometimes you can hear the boy moaning as life ebbs away onto the bathroom floor. Bullshit, I snapped. My grandma lives in a haunted castle in Scotland with ghost stories that would make your hair stand on end. She would laugh at me if she found out I ignored a perfectly good bathroom because of a few bloodstains. Besides, the maintenance staff told me the bathroom was shut up pending renovations, so I thought, no big deal. So my roommate looks at me darkly and says, you'll be sorry. I ignored him. He was just sore because I lumped him in with a disgusting lot of fuckers who messed up the bathroom all over my floor. You'd think somebody would teach him to pick up the dirty clothes or clean up the sink at least once in a while. Anyway, when the dorm quieted down for the night, which wasn't until late, I hurried up to the fourth floor with a bit of wire that I bought at a local hardware store. Now, my little brother and I had become expert lock pickers over the years. Since my mom had a bad habit of locking her keys into the house or the car at least once a week. So with all that experience, the lock in the bathroom door gave me no problems. So the bathroom was rather old-fashioned and the appearance of... It had disused air sort of sense to it. Anyway, the dust was in the corners and a spiderweb drooped from the ceiling. I had no unearthly groaning. I didn't hear anything, no mysterious footsteps, nothing. I carefully inspected the sink, the walls, and the floor. Other than a smallish orange discoloration on the sink, there wasn't any blood anywhere. <laughs> so much for urban legends. There was probably something in the water that caused discoloration over time. I turned to tap experimentally, and sure that the maintenance staff had shut up the water long ago, to my surprise, water gushed forth instantly. So I smiled and said, well, well, I got a little bathroom all to myself. I carefully locked the door behind me when I left, and that was that. So it wasn't until evening when everyone had gone back into the dorm, crowding in and out of the bathrooms, that I slipped away to use the locked-up facilities. And it was still early in the evening. I had made sure no one was around before I headed to the abandoned bathroom. With a few twists of the wire, I opened the lock. I stepped inside. The air temperature plummeted 20 degrees or more, and my nose was hit by the pungent, strong smell of blood. Second later, I saw the blood splattered all over the sink. Bright red gore was everywhere. On the porcelain, on the walls, oozing down the sides of the sink. And hovering before it, his feet a good six inches off of the ground, 
was the luminous form of a college-aged boy wearing old-fashioned clothes in the style of the 1960s. His forehead had a disfiguring dent smashed into it, and blood was dripping down from his face. As I gaped at him, horrified and frozen in terror, he looked at me. Then he held out a blood-stained hand. His eyes were desperate, pleading for help. I heard a low moaning sound coming from between his blood-stained lips. The sound raised every hair on my body. It made my skin prickle in sheer cold horror. I backpedaled fiercely, my legs scrambling to get away, while my eyes and head remained fixed on the ghost on the bloody sink. A drop of red blood fell from his outstretched hand as I stared at him. Then the momentum of my legs carried me through the door, which slammed shut behind me, and the hot, pungent smell of fresh blood followed me through the halls and down the staircases until I was outside into the chilly air of autumn, breathing deeply. My knees shook so bad I fell in the nearest patch of grass, stomach heaving. God, the ghost was real. No wonder they kept the place locked up. I lay on the grass for a long time, ignoring the chill in the air. This was a natural chill which comforted, not the unnatural chill that had fucking frightened me upstairs. I breathed in and out, in and out, watching the stairs above me, bright even through the campus lights. I took comfort from the huge clear expanse of the sky, but I still felt reluctant to go back inside that haunted building. I shuddered once from head to toe. <laughs> Grandma would laugh as she knew her big brave grandson was too scared to go back inside a haunted dormitory. It was the thought of Grandma that got me back to my feet and upstairs to my room. But I didn't care what Granny or anyone else thought of me. I was never going back to the fourth floor bathroom. Once was enough. So interestingly enough, there were a lot of legends circulating campuses in the 60s and 70s about kids doing LSD and staring at the sun until they went blind. You think the CIA planted those stories? It was reportedly spread by anti-drug activists. That's probably true. But there's also a variant where kids would take PCP and then pluck out their eyes. And it's like, oh, you just can't even see the damage you're doing, man. Oh, that is some obvious symbolism. I know, right? We can't make it too complicated for these kids. They're not all literature majors, okay? Just 77% of them. And of course we know that kids in college do have an increase in in drinking alcohol and taking drugs. Right, and they're away from parental control for the first time. And they're, a lot of times, really experimenting heavily or with new things for the first time and they're not sure of their own limits right this is a life stage that's characterized by risk and risk taking and testing those limits living in this new unregulated environment surrounded by same age peers that are sometimes you know egging it on it seems people are also doing it purely just to, to catch up so this is one of my favorite stories that i came across as i was doing research and this is If the UK offers us moaning Myrtle, this is the United States answer in such a profound way. This is barfing Barb. Elegant. So she's a ghost at Indiana State University in Buford Hall. And people hear vomiting in the middle of the night. 
It's in a women's dormitory. And they'll go into the bathroom to see if someone needs help. And there's no one there. No one's there. Just the barf sound, which really awful, terrible sound. The worst. Barb is usually depicted as some sort of social justice warrior. And she's either of the moment or of the moment that just passed. In the 1960s, she was associated with the Black Power Movement. And in the 1990s, she was associated with the LGBT rights movement. And when the story is told, generally a little bit after the fact, her death is presented as ironic, meaning that the cause would, you know, black power or, or civil rights or, or gay rights <clears throat> have been accepted by the people on campus. It's saying, like, she was so upset and so obsessed with this cause, and God, if she just knew that, you know, in five years, everyone was going to be cool with this. She wouldn't have had to, the stories of how she died vary, but like OD on drugs or, you know, become so anxious that she couldn't cope and turn to drugs or whatever it is that leads to her vomiting herself to death. So it's curious to note that in the early 2000s, she turned into this kind of girl gone wild. Like the fashion boobs kind? Yes. And she supposedly died of alcohol poisoning after a frat party. Well, that was something that was very common in the news at the time. Yes. Like right before we went to college, which this is right before we went to college. You know, it was always like, oh, this, these students were dying of alcohol poisoning. Right. In some of my newspaper searches, I would find cases of like five students dying in hazing rituals and things like that from around this time. So it kind of makes sense. But students now like to argue about whether or not she was just drinking to have fun and totally within her rights, or if she had had to start drinking to kind of mitigate the social pressures of college life, if she was using this unhealthy coping mechanism in order to deal with college, or if she'd been like forced to drink too much at the frat party, you know, that kind of idea. And so Barb just in general has come to be kind of this symbol of frustration or anxiety. And her presence really asks people to stay the course and highlights the value of perseverance and patience. She is the It Gets Better ghost. Does she have a YouTube channel? <laughs> That's all it is. <laughs> Today we're investigating this new YouTube channel. <laughs> it's just barfing sounds. In an empty bathroom. We don't know. Now this is interesting because... It's in a bathroom. I mean, that's weird. We've talked about, like, Latronelia before. Yes. And that's an interesting topic. Well, I think that the idea of a bathroom ghost has less to do with the ghost being there and more to do with how you feel when you're in these private public bathrooms in in dorms. You feel a little icky. Like, really, that's the word. Your dorm just smelled like urine and lavender. lavender. I know. It was terrible. But bathrooms are, to put it as eloquently as possible, kind of a social equalizer. Because everybody poops? Everybody poops. They're a big fat reminder that everybody poops. And they're oddly public, uh, supposed to be private, and they're very uncomfortable to be in. Like, you don't get to go in and lock the door. You can lock your stall, if you're lucky, and it's not malfunctioning, but you're still very vulnerable in this public space. I mean, you're either naked or you're on a toilet or, you know, you're rushing in to brush your teeth at three in the morning and hoping no one notices that you're still up because you've been barfing. Barfing. (laughs) So Barb's a very interesting ghost. Now let's move from the place where the base functions take place to 
A place of pure intellectual delight. Delight? Drudgery. <laughs> yes. By this, I mean the library. Hallowed Hall of Learning. Where they keep the knowledge. Mm-hmm. So there are many ghost stories that spawn from overachievers. And these people commonly could not handle failure. And they hold themselves to a very high standard. And Bronner says student lore reflects the notion that the life of the mind is often obsessive. And those who follow this life, including students, risk insanity. And there's also a message that's sent by these stories of people who dedicate themselves too stringently to academic life. There's a tone of condemning this high concentration of intellectuals, almost as if to say it can create a toxic environment. It seeks to kind of balance that out with common sense values and normalcy. We need them to go back to suburbia. We don't need everyone to become a college professor. Right, like you are way too committed to this. You cannot stress out that much over getting a C because you wanted to go to med school. Med school sucks. Don't do it. (laughs) And there's a story of a girl who is diabetic and gets really stressed out and starts eating chocolates because they make her feel better, even though she knows they're bad for her. And she eventually dies at a desk in the library. Her body stays there a while before anyone notices. And eventually she has to come back as a ghost and alert people that she's dead because they, everyone thinks she's just passed out of the desk because that's such a common sight. Just that overachiever studying till their Adderall wore off. Yes, and she's using unhealthy coping mechanisms, which is a theme we've saw with the drug stuff. But I think there's kind of an overarching theme throughout all of these ghost stories where they sort of highlight vulnerability presented as awkwardness. And there's a tone of underestimating how crazy people can be. And many of these stories, cries for help, go unheard, or are misinterpreted by those who hear them. People are afraid of letting on that they're struggling or that they don't feel like they can do it alone. We're meant to notice how any unexpected stress can throw off the delicate balance. We see that a lot of these characters might push other people away and that barriers and boundaries are often misunderstood by every party involved. And I think that this plays into this idea where we see both the causes and the effects of public isolation through these ghost stories. And that's that feeling of being alone in a crowded room, feeling isolated while you still feel an incredible lack of privacy and a lack of autonomy. You can't go lock yourself in your room and have a good cry because your roommate might need to get in. You have to always keep up appearances. You're surrounded by people, but you may not be connected to them at all. You're asked to be social all the time, but you may not feel close to anyone. Right, just those artificial connections. We started this discussion by talking about, like, overachievers. And one common place to find overachievers is, of course, the library. And it's a very common venue in murder legends that circle around college campuses. Because it's this big, anonymous building where everyone is distracted by concentrating on their own thing. Yeah, it's just like this labyrinthine area. Floors and floors and small dark paths just of walls of books it's kind of ominous it is and it's you know think about the carols in there in our old library which they're talking about tearing down now actually you know there were little rooms you know they're just big enough to house the desk and you go in and you can lock it and that's the bonus you can lock yourself in a little tiny room and study all day because the need for concentration is very real you need to be able to completely ignore your surroundings and lose yourself in your work but by doing this 
you're allowing yourself to be vulnerable. You go there to be alone and to not pay attention to what's going on around you. But when you do that, you're alone and you're not paying attention to what's around you. Do you see the paradox this creates? (laughs) So there's a legend that circles around Penn State University that row 51 in the stacks is haunted by the ghost of a girl who was murdered. No. Yes. No one heard her scream. And the killer was never caught. And once, on the anniversary of her death, they found a lit candle on the row. It was surrounded by clippings from newspapers about her murder. And there was a note written on the floor that said, R.I.P. P.S. I'm back. Who's back? The girl who was murdered. (gasps) Her ghost. And she's going to eat you like chocolate. Different ghost. Oh, different ghost. Okay. Well, anyway, that's the story. I don't know why the clippings, but... Well, the clippings, because the clippings are real. Wait. What? (laughs) Go say what? (laughs) Right. So, this is the story of Betsy Ardsma. And she was a 22-year-old grad student in literature at Penn State. And she was from Holland, Michigan. She'd originally graduated from the University of Michigan in 1968 with honors and went to do her graduate program at Penn State. Now, she was considering at one point joining the Peace Corps. And she was accepted, which is a really big deal. Because this was like a brand new thing. But she was kind of engaged to David Wright, who was a med student in Hershey, Pennsylvania. Whenever she was like, Hey, will you wait for me a year? He was like, nah. 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 And she was like, oh, <laughs> I'm not going to save children in Africa. I'll go work on my graduate degree. And she did. And she did. And so that's how she ended up at Penn State. And she really was an intelligent, popular, beautiful girl. As all the papers will tell you, pretty girl. Oh, my God. Some of the papers where it's like. The attractive blue-eyed brunette was found vomit. And she considered lots of different career paths. Originally, she was going to maybe like a doctor or an artist or, you know, join the Peace Corps. And eventually, through the relationship she had, ended up going to grad school. And there's this awesome quote from a 1969 newspaper that makes me want to bang my head against the wall. It says, she hoped to either become a dedicated doctor's wife, an artist... A professor of literature or a teacher on Indian reservations, but a dedicated doctor's wife. Oh, yes, that's what she hoped. Yeah, take that with a grain of salt. She was described by her professor as had the deep sensitivity of an artist for others' feelings and a keen sense of observation in addition to her natural abilities. So it was Thanksgiving holiday and she had gone to visit her boyfriend, David and Hershey, and she'd come back Friday morning to work on some schoolwork. So she went to the library to do research, and she was found collapsed in the library at Penn State on November 28th of 1969. She was found in the stacks among the bookshelves. A female student realized something was wrong whenever a man walked out of the stacks and said, hey, somebody ought to help that girl. So when students found her, they tried to resuscitate her. She just seemed passed out. She was in a red dress. They even tried CPR and couldn't help her. The paramedics came. They 
couldn't figure out why she had passed out, why she was non-responsive. They thought maybe she had a seizure. And they brought her to the hospital in the ambulance. Whenever she got there, the doctor discovered that she had been stabbed. And she was stabbed in the left breast. And now since she was wearing a red dress, no one noticed the blood that had come from her wound. And it wasn't a lot of blood, actually. It was just a very small puncture wound. It was a small puncture wound that hit the perfect spot to kill her. Her pulmonary artery. Now, they were unsure if there was any sign of struggle. She had no defensive wounds, so they felt that she might have been attacked from behind. Now, after this had occurred... They called the janitor to come clean up the mess, and he dutifully did. Well, initially, they thought she might have just had a seizure or something. Right. They had no idea that there was foul play right. involved. There were books strewn about, and just, hey, come clean this up. It was not malicious at all, because they had no reason to think this was a murder in the stacks. No, that sounds like an urban legend. And so witnesses left the scene. The scene was completely cleaned. There was some Dutch pornography found at the scene of the crime. Did she have Dutch pornography? I don't think it was hers. I think that that led them to believe that maybe she'd found somebody in the midst of engaging with her Dutch pornography. Engaging? (laughs) Self-pollution? They need to eat some cornflakes. The sin of Onan. But yes, the thought was maybe she'd come upon somebody engaging with her Dutch pornography and they had been like, not today, Betsy! Ha ha! And I ran away! And le- accidentally left their Dutch pornography, which I'm sure they were sad about, because it was a sticker price of $10. Ooh. Back then. What is Dutch pornography? Does it mean something? I don't know. It's just, just how it was referred to. Do they wear clogs? <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. Look at all the tulips. So Lieutenant Kimmel led the initial investigation with 18 other officers. They came to it with a completely cleaned crime scene with no... Witnesses stole the scene, and they had a hell of an investigation, where the only evidence being, other than the stab wound, some Dutch pornography. (laughs) We're looking for a man named Hans. So state police conducted 1,500 interviews in the first two weeks. There were no obvious suspects, and they never found a murder weapon, and no arrest was ever made. Now, she was from Michigan, and at this time, at... The University of Michigan, there was an active serial killer. And they checked for a link to the active serial killer known as the co-ed killer, not Ed Kemper, when you Google it. And he was very much in the business of killing very pretty dark-haired girls and had done so multiple times. And they checked for a link, but they couldn't make it work. But it was really the Zodiac Killer. It's always the Zodiac Killer. Ted Cruz was very busy. I'm just kidding. That's a lie. But his dad did kill JFK. Just kidding. That's a lie. But he is terrible. Or is it? (laughs) So I found in an article that they partially published a poem by Betsy that she had written in 1965 that was found among her things after she died. And this poem was read at her funeral. And I just thought it was really interesting. And I thought I would share it with you. It's called Why I Live. I'm living in preparation for death. And what I live for will last and increase in the face of eternity. Time is my friend. Time is my beginning. I exist for a reason. So oddly prophetic. Right. And so from a newspaper at the time, it said, Whatever may be discovered in further investigation of the campus tragedy, we hope it will be a solution to the murder and not another mystery 
as in the unsolved Rachel Taylor case. Again, oddly prophetic, it remains unsolved. Now, Rachel Taylor was a 17-year-old student who was returning to Penn State after the Easter break in 1940. And she was picked up at the bus station by a man in an automobile and found by a janitor five hours later stabbed to death in a field. And they lived in the same dormitory on campus at Penn State. That'll make a ghost. And that case is also still unsolved. Now, while there's no official charges ever filed, no official fingers pointed, arrests made, there was a book published that had a theory. Right. Murder in the Stacks, I believe it was called. So in the book by David DeCock, he puts forward the suspect, Rick Hafner, who was a geology student at Penn State at the time in the graduate program. He was working on his Ph.D., And he'd gone out for coffee a couple of times with Betsy and they didn't know each other. And he just went on to be a real creep and kind of a terrible person for the rest of his life. And there's a good circumstantial case against him. I don't know if it was him or not. Like my gut feeling is it's not, which is weird, but I just, I I read the book. I spent the time. I can see it. It's not crazy idea like, oh, it's a Zodiac killer or it's Ted Bundy. Oh, that was another one. Ted Bundy. I was like, uh, just kidding. Ted Bundy would never have left a body. He had a freezer. So we see with this case that sometimes ghost stories and these stories that are told around campuses are not just morality tales. They're not just warning tales. They're not just reflections of uh, students' anxieties. Sometimes they're based on truth. Right. And I think that there is something almost respectful about the way we're willing to turn campus tragedies into ghost stories. Like we're almost saying that this needs to be remembered. We don't need to forget this. I can see what you're saying. You know, maybe we can learn from this. But I mean, I just read a poem by Betsy Ardsma to our entire audience. We remember her. And so let's turn back to our ghost story. Our ghost story at LSU at Pleasant Hall, of our jealous, maybe jilted lover of some sort. It always changes, but girl some way shoots her boyfriend and then shoots herself in Pleasant Hall, and the ghost still haunts the place. I may have found the kernel of truth. Really? I went deep tracks on this one. I have been researching for quite a while, but... I found the story of Miss Ethel Rose Rogers, and she was born on July 13th, 1930, and Betsy's birthday was July 11th. Just interesting note. And she was from Columbia, Louisiana, and she was the only child. Her father managed a grocery store, and her mother's name was also Ethel. Now, she was a very bright student as well. She was a graduate student at LSU in musical performance, piano, and organ and a former graduate of LSU undergrad and Northeastern Louisiana University in Monroe Junior College. And she was the valedictorian of her high school class. She'd been a member of the student council while at LSU, took part in concerts for the blind. She was a member of the Phi Theta Kappa sorority, a top-rate student, and attended LSU on a full scholarship. And she also played piano and organ for radio broadcast. Sounds quite all-American. She was. So on November 2nd, 1951, around 2.20 p.m. in Grace King Hall, an LSU phone or switchboard operator noticed that a phone had been left off the hook. 
She phoned Helen Blakeman, who was a student housed in the adjoining room, and asked her to go put the phone back on the hook. Now, when Blakeman went to do so, she found that the door was locked. So she went downstairs and asked the house mother for a passkey and returned around 2.25 and unlocked the door. And when she did, she found the body of Ellen Rose Rogers, just 21 years old, on the floor between the closet and the wall where there was a phone mounted. She was face up with a bullet wound in her chest and there were powder burns on the front of her dress. Later, they would say that the bullet entered the side of her left breast and ranged from right to left and came out the back. Left breast again. That's odd. I know. And it's also on a Friday in November. Ah, coincidence. Right? So, upon further investigation in the room, they found that on a shoulder-high shelf in the closet, on or in a tissue box, depending on which account you read, there was a twenty-two automatic pistol in a box of bullets with 43 still inside. There were five bullets in the magazine, one in the chamber, and one spent shell on the floor. And they also found a leather holster for the gun. So they found all of the bullets that would go in that box. Right, a box of 50, we can assume. She was pronounced dead at the scene by the East Baton Rouge Parish coroner. And the initial theory of the police was very interesting and very quickly put forward to the public. The deputy said that there was no sign of a struggle, there were some smudges on the gun, and maybe some partial fingerprints, and they were going to test. They were going to do some forensics. Detective Brian Clemens said in his initial comment, We are sure that there was no foul play, though, to quote the Shreveport Times, he gave no explanation of how he thought the shooting had occurred. It's okay, nothing to see here. I have no clue what happened. <laughs> Many investigators believed initially that Rogers was loading the gun when it accidentally fired shooting her in the chest, at which point she put the gun back on the shelf in the box, turned to call for help, and fell before she could dial. What? No. I'm sorry. She was shot in the chest. This would be like virtually point-blank range. And then she put it back. And then she's like, I'm going to put this in the box. I'm going to put it on the shelf. Let me try to call someone. And then she had like a movie death. Like, Like a Like a 17-second, like, fall and fall and fall and fall. Yeah. So there was an inquest held the next day at 8.30, and her mother, her roommate, students from adjoining rooms, and two, quote, men students she dated. Really? Really. And law enforcement officials were all interviewed. So first on our our stand here in our hearing, let's have a little mock hearing. Boom, boom. First on the stand is Santiago Jimmy Aragones. So the gun was identified as belonging to Aragones, who was a student from oh, really? Caracas, Venezuela. Oh, my. So a hot Latin lover. And he said that he'd met Ethel at the Tigertown drugstore on Halloween, which is my favorite sentence ever. <laughs> and she asked him, presumptuous Ethel, to go turtle hunting with her. Turtle hunting? I don't know if it's a euphemism. Hey, baby. You want to go turtle hunting? <laughs> And she asked him to go downtown with her and buy a gun. This man that she randomly met at a drugstore. Don't do this. Don't do this. This is a bad idea. This is how you get murdered and make a ghost. <laughs> ask people to go turtle hunting. But first, let's, let's go, go buy, buy a gun. gun. <laughs> so they visited several sporting goods stores looking for a gun, but she couldn't find one that she liked for $20, which is what she had to spend on it, which is a lot. In 1951, why did she have $20 to blow on a gun to go turtle, turtle hunting? hunting? I don't know. 
I don't know. We can't know all the answers. They examined automatics while they were out gun shopping after meeting at Tigertown Drugstore, because that's the thing that happened. And he had to remind her not to put her finger on the trigger when she was cocking it. That's what she said. Yes. So then they went back to campus, and she asked if she could borrow his gun. And so he went to his room and cleaned it. And then he met her at the Huey P. Long Fieldhouse to deliver the gun. That place is haunted. That place is haunted. And he said he saw her put her gun, put his gun, in her locker at the Music and Dramatic Arts building. And that he hadn't seen it since. And she assured him that she, quote, knew about guns. And turtle hunting. (laughs) Said this piano player. It is Louisiana. Yeah, true, true. So Brian Clemens, who is a detective, did follow up on this to his credit, to his eternal credit. And he visited stores and confirmed that Jimmy had indeed accompanied Ethel to go shopping for turtle hunting guns. And the store clerks said that they saw them together. And then one clerk said that she'd returned alone to purchase bullets. And the clerks also told Clemens that Rogers was, quote, inept at handling automatic weapons. That girl can't handle that. Inept. That's a quote. Now, next on the stand, we have yet another Latin lover. Girl. All right. Raul Montes, who is also a university student from Cuba. Commies did it. The commies did it. Spoke with her about 2 p.m. on the day of the accident by phone. Now, she'd previously arranged to meet with him at the music building around 10 o'clock on Wednesday, which the curfew at Penn State in 1969 for women students was still 9 p.m. So I have a feeling in 1951 at LSU, meeting a man at 10 o'clock at night on a Wednesday would have been very scandalous. Girl. I have a feeling that's why this detail was included. I think it's supposed to be titillating. Oh, my. But she didn't show up. And so he called her to see, like, what the deal was. And she said, oh, sorry, I just wasn't feeling well. And then he asked her to be his date for the homecoming dance that night. And she said that she would love to. Girls going to homecoming dances, meeting people at 10 o'clock at night, and going turtle hunting. (laughs) (laughs) Scarlet woman. But the telephone operator testified that the phone was never put back on the hook after this call ended. That's sketchy. Right? Several women from the dormitory were interviewed, and they stated that they heard a a muffled bang followed by a thud around 2 p.m., but it really wasn't loud. And then law enforcement did have follow-up on the fingerprints. However, there was nothing useful. They found a partial fingerprint on the shell, but they couldn't get a clear comparison, which may just mean that it didn't match her fingerprints and they didn't care. Her mother did testify and wept the entire time she was on the stand. The day after her daughter's death, she's at a coroner's inquest. Oh my God, I can't even imagine. She said, Ethel liked to be by herself a lot. She was a model child. And that she had hunted turtles with her uncles since she was 12. Okay, fine. <laughs> this is Louisiana, folks. And she, her mother did say that her daughter was unaccustomed to automatic weapons. This is Louisiana. This is what your mom knows. Yeah. She had, no, she never used an automatic. And her roommate, Colleen Moore, said that she'd been happy at breakfast that morning and seemed totally fine. Now, the coroner's jury did find that it was, quote, purely an accident. 
because there was no evidence unearthed that she was despondent and because just prior to the time she was found, she had made a date by phone for the university homecoming dance. So surely a girl with a date to the homecoming dance would never kill herself. Oh, of course not. That is 1950s logic. So let's go through what happened with this case. The evidence really doesn't point anywhere. It also is hard for me to accept that it was purely an accident. I just need more proof. I think the fact that someone before any investigation was conducted was telling papers, no foul play, no foul play. Like, there's there's no reason for that. There's no reason for this rush to judgment. Let's look at some of the factors that are moving here. Like, when you go through it in a linear way, sure, turtle hunting. Okay, we're on board turtle hunting. That's a thing that apparently people do. And I can believe that she she did say those words out loud. However. Not as a euphemism. We also have a variety of factors here. We have competing love interest. Scandalous. We have a white girl from North Louisiana involved with two Latino men. Very scandalous. In 1951. And nobody's bringing that up? Nobody's saying anything about that? Not in the paper. We have a gun in a box in a closet. Yeah, I just it's hard for me to believe she put it back in the box on the closet. And we have a phone that was in use and never put back on the hook. Which means that he would have had, like the shot would have had to be perfectly timed before she got the phone back on the hook. After he'd already hung up for him not to hear it. She was like, yeah, I'd love to go to the dance and like loading the gun as she did it. I mean, she seems like the kind of girl who might. I can believe that she needed to get out and do some turtle hunting that day. Let's get a little stress out. But dude boy, Jimmy, Santiago Jimmy, was not planning to go with her. Like she asked him to go with her and then she asked to borrow the gun to go by herself. Does this make sense to you? Does this sound like the way people act? No. It's odd. If you were Jimmy, would you lend her the gun to go by herself? Or would you be like, I can't lend it to you, but we can go together. Yeah, I'd be like, let me show you how to shoot it. (laughs) And then, like, she supposedly made this date with another guy before she was killed with Jimmy's gun. Anybody for Jimmy was hiding in the closet? Anybody? And he locked his door on the way out? Anybody? Or, like, walked in on it? (laughs) Like, and he was hiding in there, and he heard her make a date with the other guy. That was enough. Jimmy, I'm looking at you. Is it Jimmy, or was it all a setup? Did Dude Boy leave his phone off his hook and go over there and shoot her for carousing with Jimmy, dirty Venezuelan? We'll never know. We'll never know. Or did she commit suicide? Because just because somebody seems happy doesn't mean they're not suicidal. Sorry. Sorry. No, for sure. People do not always, I mean, we've talked about this like in the hanging episode, Mm -hmm. you know, people can seem perfectly fine and then just make that split second decision. Like, why was she so persistent about getting this gun and going back and buying bullets on her own and all like, why, why all of a sudden, you know, in two days she had formed this, this need for a gun. She'd been at college for years and never needed to go turtle hunting before. And so it's definitely a possibility that this story has transformed and changed and been updated to become the legend that all LSU students know now. 
Right, because of all the buildings on campus, Pleasant Hall has changed its name and appearance a lot. And it was the Lod Cook Hotel and it was shut down for major renovations and it had to kind of like draw attention to it. And, you know, for a year being out of use and people being, you know, oh, it's not a dorm anymore. Why don't they use it as a dorm anymore? Maybe something bad happened there. You can imagine that happening quite easily. And where did the boyfriend come from was my big question when I was looking at all this. Well, I can see the story being reduced to she shot herself with her boyfriend's gun. And then I can see it becoming she shot her boyfriend, then herself. You know, It's not that much of a stretch. So this may be the seed that grew into our college ghost story. And it may not. But what I want to draw attention to here is how easy it is to project all of these themes all of these anxieties, anxieties about relationships and strangers and the pressures of being an overachieving student and strange ways of coping. I mean, if you feel better after you go turtle hunting, so do I. More power to you. So do I. I feel better for you. You know, you can throw in there, maybe she was pregnant. You can throw in there, maybe she was drunk and couldn't handle the gun. You can throw in there any of the myriad ideas that we've presented in this episode and they all seem effortless and they all fit because those are all of the common anxieties that anyone that's in college or that has experienced that time period of life can understand and relate to they're kind of timeless and they're always hard and that's not just a story no it's not just a story Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining Podcasts. Society-13.com I like to listen.